It's Monday, August 27th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio from Motley Fool Asset Management, Bill Barker. Happy Monday. Thank you. Thanks for being here. It's good to be back. We're going to dip into the Fool mailbag. We're going to talk about the story that we need to talk about, which is, of course, coffee drones and IBM's attempt to... Well, we'll get to that in a second. We got to start with Tesla, though. We got to start with the story that broke late on Friday night when Elon Musk, uh, in a blog post on Tesla's website, uh, explained, yeah, we're going to stay private. I mean, we're going to stay public. Uh, we're going to stay public because even though we've got the money, we, we could go private, but uh, investors want us to stay Public, yes. Let me just, uh, as charitably as I can, say that the timing of this uh, makes it doesn't help. It doesn't help the optics. The optics were, which already weren't all that great to begin with for Tesla and specifically for Elon Musk, starting on August seventh with the funding secured tweet. From then until close to midnight on Friday. Sneaking this out. The, uh, the timing being after the close on, on Friday. It wasn't just after the close on Friday. Berkshire Hathaway puts out their quarterly earnings release after the bell on Fridays. They do it very quietly. They famously don't do a quarterly conference call with shareholders. But Warren Buffett and his team don't say, let's put out our earnings release close to midnight on Friday. So, I, again, if I'm if I'm part of Elon Musk's brain trust, and he's saying, when do you think we should put this out? I'm saying, either put it out immediately after the market closes on Friday, or put it out before the market opens on Monday. Don't do it in the middle of the night. He likes to do it as soon as it you know, pops into his head. <laughs> what, makes, what makes you think that that information was completely available to disseminate right at the close of the market on Friday. You're right. I'm probably the only one who thinks it's suspicious that he put this out close to midnight on Friday. I think that he put it out when when it became his feeling that that was uh, you know that it was done. Let me quote directly from the letter. It's apparent that most of Tesla's existing shareholders believe we are better off as a public company. Do you think they are? Uh, of the existing shareholders that they that want to, uh, do, not, do they think or do I think? Do you think? I think it has a promising future over the the next decade as a public company. As a public company, yes. If if somebody can help Musk get through his issues with the the short sellers, I think those are a distraction, which are not helpful to the actual shareholders. I mean, they they are. I'm not saying anything is, um, you know, the short sellers are doing anything wrong at all. Uh, just that the interaction of them getting under Musk's skin, uh, his allowing that to happen is unhelpful to the actual shareholders. So I've stunned you into silence. You don't know where to go with this. I mean, there are a few different ways we could go. Um, let's go uh, towards the legality of all of this. Um, not to question whether or not it is legal, although there are certainly people out there uh, rattling some cages regarding shareholder lawsuits, saying, "Well, look, 
this was uh, this was a way for him to get rid of some short sellers um, and some people. I mean, if you just look at from the moment the funding secured announcement went out, August seventh, Tesla shares closed at three hundred seventy nine dollars a share. Today, they're about seventeen percent lower than that. So there are. There's a non-zero number of shareholders who have lost money on this stock because of all of this public drama that Musk has generated. To what extent, if any, would you be um, would you be betting on the side of any lawsuits that come his way? I uh, would prefer I'd prefer to be uh, his defense counsel than on the uh, the class action lawsuits. Uh, now. I think there could be some regulatory uh, wrist slap uh, about the way in which the information was disseminated, but I think that it will. I, I am accepting of the story that Tesla has put out, which is that this is, uh, you know, a, a sort of there was funding, there was in uh, unofficial, informal funding agreements. Oral probably with with the Saudis were uh, certain elements, not all of which are on the same page regarding this funding, uh, and that that was uh, boosted up to funding secured. Whether it was secured or not, it ultimately, uh, as it played out over the couple of weeks which followed, uh, wasn't going to be used. Uh, so I think that the the manner in which this was disclosed was obviously. Uh, suboptimal, and I think that there are going to be consequences for that, but I don't think there are going to be major consequences. Do you think there's any way we get to Tesla's next earnings announcement, which is what two and a half months away, uh, two months and change away? Do you think there's any way we get to that without any further drama here? Because it seems like the best thing that Musk could do for his company, for his shareholders, including himself, is to just focus on vehicle production. Yeah, I think there's a chance that uh, lessons will be learned, and he will focus on that, and that uh, the, those close to him will convince him of uh, you know why that would be the best thing for him to do. Uh, I think that there are going to be distractions from you know the legal consequences which follow. Uh, and that that's going to be somewhat of a distraction, but he's already easily distracted. You know, I mean, whether it's uh, creating submarines for trapped soccer teams or uh, you know SpaceX, he's got a lot of things going on in his head. But but from a legal standpoint, when you see these stories of uh, this group is putting together a class action lawsuit uh, for shareholders, so is that group over there. Given your past experience as a government lawyer, you're not too concerned about it. I, uh, given my past experience uh, regarding some class action suits, I would not be too concerned about it because there's always a lot more uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth by by the uh, class action bar than than ultimately is visited upon the the company. Uh, and I think that the contours of the story are generally uh, what they appear to be, which is legitimate. Uh, consideration was given to taking this company public. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, private, and that uh, having weighed the pros and cons at the moment, it is now uh, Musk's and and the company's 
considered opinion that that is not in the best interest of shareholders. But there is plenty to look at and say that the, it's worth considering um, being private. Companies do that. And certainly, the distractions of a quarterly production schedule are not helpful uh, to the long-term interests of shareholders here. So, I think it, it is something. There's nothing to me about that consideration that smacks of, of dishonesty. And I think that the way that it played out, it shows certainly that Musk is, uh, you know, a little bit a little bit flighty on uh, giving his his innermost thoughts out to the public in the wrong form. If if Largely, this had been done through, you know, SEC disclosures rather than tweets. Uh, it, it would have looked a lot better, obviously. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Drop us a line, would you? Let us know how you listen, where you listen, and of course, you can ask us a stock question from Jerry Villani in Cleveland, Ohio. Jerry writes, so I'm looking at my shares of Amazon at nearly $2,000 a share, and I started thinking about stock splits. I know it doesn't mean anything on paper, but it does seem that a share price of $100 would make the stock more accessible to more investors, thus creating more demand and moving the price up. What goes into the thought process of companies when deciding to split their stock or not? Uh, great question. And he's talking about Amazon. He could very easily be talking about uh, Priceline. AKA Booking Holdings, which uh, last time I checked, that stock was somewhere in the neighborhood of $2,000 a share. This was uh, an issue with, uh, an, uh, with Apple a couple of years back when they decided to, if I'm recalling correctly, Apple split their stock seven for one. Uh, and it seems like at least part of the calculus there was, oh, this will get us into an index or two. Yeah, I think that, of course, stock splits are a lot less popular today than they used to be 10, 20 years ago. Stock split announcement uh, back in the late 90s was enough to goose your share price. Uh, it, it was a, an indication, seemingly, of optimism about the future of the company. So, what actually goes in? It, going back to making it easier for shareholders to buy, I think that was a very common and um, consistent rationale with reality. Uh, back in the day, and that is that uh, companies knew that brokers tended to recommend that shares be bought in lots of a hundred, and so they would attempt to keep their price, depending on you know the, the stock in the industry, in in something that was affordable in lots of 100 shares. So, $20, $30, $40 was a pretty common stock price. And companies would um, split to be in that range. And uh, I think nowadays, where there's a lot more use of uh, electronic investing, almost total use of it, and people can just look at their accounts and say, I need eight shares or you know 15 shares, uh, it's easy to do, and you get the same price. Uh, so, so people are more comfortable with buying stocks that that have much higher prices. It is true that for a couple thousand bucks, uh, you just simply can't buy it if if you're just looking to make a two hundred dollar purchase or a thousand dollar purchase. So, uh, I don't think that there's any lack of demand for Amazon. I mean, to use Amazon specifically, there seems to be plenty of demand enough to for the stock for the stock. They don't need to. Uh, you know, split the stock, and I also think that the example of Berkshire Hathaway largely has given many of these companies like Alphabet and Amazon 
you know, a leader to follow and, and a, a demonstration that you do not need to split your stock uh, in order to keep people interested in it. They sure are fun, though. I mean, wouldn't it be fun if you were an Amazon shareholder to be like, oh, they're splitting it 10 for 1? <laughs> There's just something on a gut level. I, I, I know. I know how the math works. I know it doesn't. I know it's simply cutting the pizza into 16 slices instead of four or whatever it is. It doesn't change the size of the pizza. It's just fun. I can remember being at a um, you know meeting with management of a company that had been recommended in the Hidden Gems newsletter back in the day, and I was there with Bill Mann and Tom Gardner, and the stock had recently split, or an announcement that it was going to split had recently been made, and we asked, "Why'd you do that?" And management said. Uh, well, you know, one of the reasons was that uh, the employees who are getting options uh, just like to see a bigger number. They'd rather see that they're getting a hundred shares, uh, you know, this year uh, instead of fifty. Uh, and he said, "I know that that sounds, you know, dumb, uh, but that's one of the reasons that they did it." And and so I think that gets to the. The fun more seems more fun, and it's just a psychological thing, I guess, which is true but not helpful to shareholders. It is not helpful, and of course, the flip side of that is the case for penny stocks. I mean, that as much as anything, that is probably the number one bull case for penny stocks. Is look at how many shares you get. It's not. It's not. Look at this great business. It's no. This thing's trading at twenty cents a share. Yeah. And for a hundred bucks, look at how many shares you get. I I think that the days of a lot of stock splits seem seem to be over. I don't know. It could come back in vogue. Things go out of style and then come back in. But most of the companies that you most respect in terms of their market capitalization and and recent stock performance run into the hundreds and now occasionally thousands of dollars per share. And they are suffering no ill consequences of that. So uh, I think that uh, it's it's got a lot to do with uh, electronic trading and the ability to just buy seven shares of, a, of an expensive stock. Question from Roy in Tel Aviv: What are the best stocks to watch for in the entertainment for children segment? It's a great question, and we get variations of investing for children questions. I guess one of the thoughts that pops to mind when I get a question like this is, if you're wondering what should I watch in when it comes to entertainment for children, then one way to go is watch what what entertains your children. What are your children using? What is popular amongst them? And that may be at least one one way to get ideas. It doesn't mean necessarily rush out and buy shares of that thing, but what becomes popular with your children and their friends uh, is certainly a good place to start. Yeah, it helps frame it helps frame the question. And I suppose one of the answers I would look at is and a disclosure here that we have Hasbro in. Uh, some of our funds uh, don't invest in Mattel, which seems to be, <laughs> you know, a, a classic. I'm glad you and, led with the disclosure. A classic, and well, you know, uh, Mattel has really gone the other way. They really have from, from Hasbro, and and so it's worth. These were roughly equals uh, not that long ago, and they are not today. And 
Mattel is still the maker of many fine and well-known brands that are entertained children today, and in some ways, just as they entertained them 40 years ago. Uh, but it, it, they are not a well-run company, and they are not—they they have not been making the right steps, and uh, they have suffered with the close of Toys R Us. So uh, Hasbro has too, but to a much lesser degree, and is much better positioned because of their the steps they have made, um, getting more of their their names into mobile gaming and and online, uh, and just being a better better run company. And yes, disclosure, there's a there's a you know invested interest in that uh, in terms of our funds. So, uh, but th- those are entertainment stocks for kids, not in the you know. Um, Visual entertainment so much, uh, but uh, I think don't invest in Mattel is is my my first thought about that. And people for many years would have uh, in terms of the getting their kids interested in a stock, something they know, something they love from a young age. They know the Mattel brands uh, and would have done this, and and unfortunately would not have done as well. Is if they had invested in Disney, or or just oh, you know what, my entertains my kid is my iPhone. You know that is what a lot of parents do to entertain their kids at a very young age. Now, when they want a few minutes of quiet, hand over the phone or the iPad or something like that, and I think those qualify as well uh, as being one of the, some of the companies that most are integrated with entertaining kids. According to paperwork filed with our neighbors at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, IBM has secured a patent for a coffee drone that not only flies around public spaces to deliver coffee, it also predicts when you will need the coffee. What do we think about this? Because my initial excitement about this story quickly waned, I have to admit, even though I'm someone who drinks a whole heck of a lot of coffee. I just thought, I'm not entirely sure what problem this is solving for me personally. I could see this working. Kudos to the people at IBM for having the foresight on this one, but I don't know that I need a coffee drone. Were you uh, excited by this? I was entertained by it uh, more than anything. And I think that uh, it is uh, humorous to think of uh, drones flying around. Delivering hot coffee to people and what could go wrong with that with that <laughs> right. picture? Delivering hot coffee and not scalding anyone. Uh, yeah, I mean it needs to be hot. Let's uh, now maybe that's part of the patent is is the heating technology that, that because you don't want coffee coming from someplace too far away and getting cooling down on you. I, I don't want this coffee delivered if it's room temperature. What am I going to pay for that? And you want it the way you want it. You, we, every one of us who drinks coffee, and by that I mean all us healthy people, we like our coffee a certain way. So it's got to be the way that we like it. It's, to your point, it's got to be hot. It's got to be with a really secure lid, so it's not spilling on the people in the public spaces. Yes, this is why Starbucks did not have this patent because <laughs> they cannot be trusted to deliver coffee with secure lids. That is an issue with Starbucks. Um, do you think where was your initial excitement about this? My, you, said, you said it's waned. When at peak excitement, where were you? Peak excitement was seeing the story last week and just saying, "Fantastic, coffee drone! We're we're delivering, we're getting coffee 
the healthiest beverage on the planet. We're getting it to more people more quickly. This is great. I love this. Finally, drones that are not inflicting, you know, war on people. Or right. Finally, we're turning them to peace. Right. That's this, where, where you were. This is not the war. This is not the rise of the machines. This is, oh, these are the helpful robots who are going to bring everyone coffee. But then I just thought about my own life. I, I, I like coffee a lot, but I also enjoy just the walking to get coffee. I enjoy the ritual of coffee. And so, I don't need it to be delivered to me. What if the coffee were delivered um, by land vehicle rather than by drone? You know, if it was just sort of like a, a, one of these robots that, that goes around the floor, rolls around the floor, like they have comes on the, up. Like they have on the Death Star? Uh, yeah. May I, may I get you some coffee, sir? And, and it's just right behind you, and, and you're like, oh, yeah. And, and the drone knows how you like it, too. I mean, I trust the drone to make, uh, or the robot, to make the coffee better than, like, uh, the man or woman behind the counter. See, I think who doesn't know they've got no artificial intelligence. They've got actual intelligence, and it doesn't always work. Yeah, like ah, let me just put you know half a you know half a canister of sugar in there for you because that's how the last person liked it. So I think that uh, I'm probably more bullish on that on on just a a vehicle, a small vehicle that's just going to go around and deliver. Well, the patent office is right down the street, and I see an opportunity for you. Right, I don't have the technical spec design capability. I don't have the the science behind this. I mean, that's a great idea, but I don't think you and I. I don't think that's how filing for uh, patents works. Just get the IBM patent; it's been filed, and then uh, just to replace all the like drones with like rolling robots. Do you see where the propellers are? Yeah, flip that, and it's going to be wheels. Wheels, and, and it's just going to go around. Yeah, and it's going to be friendly, friendlier than than the IBM drones because they're not they're they're. I mean, they're not shooting people, which is a step up for the drones in terms of branding their more friendly, you know, futures. You don't think Watson comes off as kind of friendly in those IBM commercials? Kind I'm, of friendly. I'm just saying the drone I'm picturing is not that friendly uh, on the the air, you know, the air delivery. Right. I'm I'm the uh, the rolling one. I think there's more. Maybe maybe it's in the form of a dog. It could be. A dog on wheels? Well, like one of those uh, Bugs Bunny St. Bernard dogs, you know? It's St. Bernard, and it's instead of um, whiskey or whatever it had in, in the little barrel that yeah. was around its collar, it's got coffee. Well, you know what we really need to do is have the dog on wheels deliver coffee in the morning and then in the afternoon, at some point in the afternoon, and by that I mean like 12.05, it flips over to whiskey. Well, you know, there are those who say, scientists even, um, they're purported to be, are saying that maybe alcohol is not as good for you as coffee. You know what? You've I, seen those reports, I've and they've s- angered you. I've seen those reports, and I think we're going to tackle that in an upcoming Apropos of Nothing episode. I think, I think that's, that's where that treatment needs to go. Yeah. Along with the robot St. Bernard's? Possibly, yeah. Yeah. I think we're out of time. You can read more from Bill Barker and his colleagues Go to FoolFunds.com. That's it. FoolFunds.com. You can sign up for declarations. It's the free monthly newsletter. We're getting a new uh, new name soon. Really? Yeah. I don't want to spoil anything. Well, okay. Well, when that's news, can you share that news here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, it'll be shared everywhere. Oh, okay. It'll be like, you know, everywhere that you get news, you'll be seeing this. Fantastic. Can you give a rough timeline for this news? Soon. 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 Before the end of 2018? 
Oh, yes. Yes. Before the end of 2018. Right. There will be like a new website and new uh, new stuff. And yeah. But but in the meantime, Full don't let that prevent you from going to fullfunds.com. And signing up for declarations. Or whatever you might do there. Or just click around. Just click around. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan, the Iron Man who is pulling double duty all week between this podcast and industry focus. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.